You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. One of the the reasons it's our regular practice here at Hayes Hills to preach our way through a book of the Bible is because it forces us to interact with texts that are difficult and sometimes uncomfortable. And our text for this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of those texts. Uh, In it, the Apostle Paul encourages the church to practice church discipline, to kick someone out of the church. And that seems to fly in the face of everything the church is trying to accomplish. I mean, aren't we supposed to be people who champion forgiveness and grace? Isn't it uh, supposed to be a place here where we acknowledge that no one is righteous? We're all sinners. And so why would Paul tell the church at Corinth, you need to kick someone out? I mean, that sounds cruel and uncompassionate. Why should the church at Corinth practice such a thing? Why do we practice such a thing here at Hayes Hills? That's the question I want to try to answer this morning as we look at God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so if you brought your Bible this morning, and I hope you did, I want to invite you to join me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got a digital device you can use to pull up the Scriptures, I would encourage you to search for the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's the translation of the Bible I'm going to be reading from this morning. And so if you search 1 Corinthians 5, ESV, you'll be able to follow right along with me. And I'm going to begin reading there in verse 1. And here's the words of the Apostle Paul. He writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is God's word to us today. And in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is shocked that the church at Corinth is tolerating a kind of sexual immorality that would make even the most brazen pagan blush. Now, we're told that a man who is a member of the church has his father's wife. And we can learn a lot from that phrase. It tells us that this man's sin is ongoing. He has his father's wife. Uh, this isn't something that happened one time in the past. It isn't some isolated incident. This is a man who is engaged in ongoing sin. He is engaged in incest with his stepmother. And that is something that even the, the pagans, the non-believers would not tolerate. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, you need to practice church discipline. And you may not be familiar with that phrase, or you may have heard it, and what you've heard of it makes you think, ah, I don't think that should actually happen. And so you're wondering, like, what is church discipline as it's taught in the Bible? And that's what I want us to see this morning, what church discipline is. And in verse 2, Paul puts it this way. He says, you ought to remove the one who has done this from among you. He's saying, you, you got to take this man and make it so that he is no longer a member of the church. In verse 5, he puts it this way. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And you can't, you know, charter a, an Uber to hell. Can't get a, a plane flight there. So you, you can't send this man to hell. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. But the Apostle Paul is saying you need to kick him out of the church and into the world. Because that is the realm that Satan presently rules. It's why Jesus refers to the devil over and over in the gospel as the ruler of this world. Because one day when Jesus returns, Satan's rule will come to an end. But until that day, Satan is at work in the world and we see the imprint of his wickedness. And Paul is saying, you need to remove this person from your membership. You need to kick him out into the world. Because that's what church discipline is due to his ongoing sin. And notice Paul is saying here in verse 4, he's not telling the pastors of the church to do this. He is telling the people of the church to do this. It's one of the reasons we are Baptists. Because we believe in this thing called congregationalism. That's a mouthful to say, but we believe in congregationalism. It means that it is not the pastors or the elders who have full and final authority in the church, but it is the members of the church, the congregation that has full and final authority. And so if you were to ask Paul, hey, who is ultimately responsible for the church? 
Paul wouldn't point to the pastor. He would point to the people. He'd say, who is responsible for Hayes Hills Baptist Church? It is ultimately you. Who is responsible ultimately for church discipline to be carried out in the church? Not the pastors, but the people. It is the congregation's responsibility. That's why in verse 4 you'll find this little phrase. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, if you're reading from one of the newer NIV translations, you won't find that phrase, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. That phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, won't be in verse 4. It'll be tucked back in verse 3. And the, the reason for that translation decision is because the NIV translators have decided, you know, it doesn't really make much sense to say when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because anytime Christians assemble, anytime Christians gather, they're assembled in the name of the Lord. But I believe the NIV translators have failed to understand a very important fact about the nature of the church. Because we could take every member of Hayes Hills that is here in this room this morning, and we could go out to Bob Shelton Stadium on Friday night for a football game, and we would be assembled, we would be gathered as members of the same church, but we would not be assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. We would be assembled to watch a football game. And because we're assembled to watch a football game, the power of the Lord Jesus would not be with us in this same way. However, we could take all the members of Hayes Baptist Church, we could go out to Bob Shelton Stadium on a Friday night, and we could go to preach God's Word. We, we could go out there to sing praise to the Lord, to celebrate in baptism, to observe the Lord's Supper. And guess what? We would be assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the power of the Lord would be among us. In the same way, we could gather here on the church campus on a Sunday morning for a Christian concert. We'd listen to some wonderful Christian music, but we wouldn't be assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's power wouldn't be with us in the same way as it is when we gather to preach God's word, to sing praise, to observe baptism, the Lord's Supper. When the church gathers in a particular way, Paul is saying, there is a particular power. And so when the church assembles to do the work of the church, we are assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we assemble in that way, there's a particular kind of power, particular kind of presence of the Lord. And Paul is saying when you assemble in that way with that power, verse 4, that's when you are to exercise church discipline. That's when the members of the church get to say we are going to receive these people into the membership of the church, or we're going to remove these individuals from the membership of the church. And we can be confident in this translation the way it is here in the ESV for a few reasons. First is just the word order in the original Greek. If you look at the original Greek text, this phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the most natural place for it to be translated is in verse 4 with the assembly of the church. But secondarily, we can also be confident in this translation option because Paul is teaching here what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18. 
Because in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, uh, Jesus teaches on church discipline. And at the end of those verses, Jesus says this. He says, for wherever two or three are gathered, what? In my name, there I am with you. And oftentimes people quote that passage as though it's referring to prayer. But those verses aren't talking about prayer. They're talking about church discipline. I mean, go look at the passage in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Jesus is saying, here is how church discipline ought to happen. And then he says, when you gather in my name, a particular kind of gathering with a particular kind of purpose, you have a particular kind of power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident in this translation because what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 is what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so this is what church discipline is. It is removing someone from membership of the church because of their ongoing sin in open rebellion to King Jesus. So then we got to say, okay, well, what is the goal of church discipline? And Paul shows us there in verse 5. He says, when you do this, you are to deliver this man to Satan for, here's the reason, here's why you discipline. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see that? The the, the ultimate goal of church discipline is not destruction, but salvation. Uh, Church discipline is not used to punish someone or to give someone a good public shaming. That is not the purpose. The purpose of discipline is so that someone might see the seriousness of their sin. They might turn and repent of it and be reconciled to the body and to the Lord. That's the goal. And so anytime a church starts using church discipline in order to kind of slap someone on the wrist for their sins or to publicly shame them, they have missed the point of church discipline. Amen? Okay, that concerns me a little bit. Anytime a a church uses discipline to slap someone on the wrist for their sin or to publicly shame them, they have missed the point of church discipline. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, Why we ought to understand this is because it, it works itself out practically in the life of the church all of the time. Uh, Let's say, for example, a a man begins to blur the lines of faithfulness to his wife because he's flirting with one of his coworkers. And maybe his wife catches him, maybe a, a buddy calls him on it. And when it is brought to his attention, the man is broken. There is godly sorrow. He, he seeks his wife's forgiveness. He invites correction. He invites increased accountability into his life. Like in that moment, that man's not to be brought in front of the church, his sins made public so that he would be shamed or slapped on the wrist. He's not to be punished. We grieve the sin. We mourn the sin. But we ought to rejoice that there is repentance and there is seeking to be reconciliation between he and his wife. But on the other hand, if there's a man who's blurring that line of faithfulness and he's caught in it, and when he's approached, he says, man, it's no big deal. It's not like I'm having an affair. If, if he just brushes off his, his actions and he acts as though it doesn't matter, well, now the wheels of church discipline have to begin. 
Pastors in the church, people in the church have to approach this brother in love and say, brother, the, the way you are acting seems to indicate that you don't really care to follow Jesus. You just want to do whatever you want to do. You don't care about his will, but your own. And that is, that's a dangerous direction to be headed. And if the man continues to persist and doesn't turn, eventually the church must be told and the church must act to remove him from membership. Not in order to punish or to shame, but to show him the seriousness of the situation that he might be reconciled and restored. This is the goal of church discipline. It's not a desire to to ruin or destroy the man's reputation, but a desire to see him reconciled and rescued. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that when we look at church discipline, we so often think that to enact church discipline is arrogant and hypocritical. Like, who do we think we are? Like, we're, we all still sin, so why should we point out the sin of somebody else? Isn't that a little, a little boastful, arrogant? Isn't it a little hypocritical? Because we're guilty, too. But notice what Paul says in verse 2. What Paul says is, if you want to look for the arrogant and hypocritical church, don't look for the church that is practicing church discipline. Look for the church that is not practicing church discipline. Look at verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. You're tolerating this brother's sin. The church in Corinth, they thought they were really something. They thought they had arrived because they they were so forgiving and compassionate and gracious. I mean, the pagans would be shocked for this man to have incest. But we, the people of Jesus, we're loving and accepting and we're just, we're going to be affirming of this decision he's made. And Paul is saying, look, that is not a sign of maturity. That is a sign of arrogance. It, It is arrogant in its posture towards the Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the church that doesn't practice discipline is saying, eh, we don't really care about Jesus' will being done. We're just going to operate on our own terms. Like, we understand, Jesus, who you are. You're, you're gracious and forgiving. And we know you told us to do this, but we actually think it would be more gracious and more forgiving to do it this way instead. So Paul says, don't you see how arrogant that is to allow someone to claim the name of Jesus Christ and then walk in open rebellion to him? That is hypocritical. It is the church that doesn't practice discipline that is arrogant. On the other hand, he says, look, um, what you've got to understand is not only is it arrogant in your posture to Jesus, it's also arrogant in your posture towards the danger of sin. There in verse 6, He says, your boasting is not good. Like your arrogance over accepting this man, that's not a good thing. Because do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's like our saying, one bad apple spoils the barrel. You know, a little little mold on one apple quickly moves to another. And before long, the whole bunch is rotten. And what Paul is saying is that sin is infectious in the life of a church. That if you don't take action, sin will begin to to slowly infiltrate the hearts of, of the entire membership and it will change your attitudes. 
And so you've got to understand how serious sin is. Because what motivated inaction in Corinth and what so often motivates inaction in churches today is, is that it's just easier to judge the world than it is to judge those inside the church. Easier to judge those outside of our fellowship than those within it. And so if you look at verses 9 through 13, you'll see that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you don't judge people outside the church. Your job is to judge those in. It's the reason we have instructions for how this man ought to be handled, but there are no instructions, are there, about how the stepmother is to be treated. Because the man is a member of the church, he has to be removed. The stepmother is an, a non-believer. She's outside the church, and so the church has, has no action to take. But what happens in the church is we like to wag our fingers at the world and say, I can't believe you would have a sexual ethic like that. And we do that because, one, it kind of builds us up. We don't even have to say it, but when we wag our finger at the world and say, I can't believe you would act that way, what we're really saying is, look how evil you are and how much better we are. <laughs> Makes ourselves look good the more we wag our finger in outrage at the world. And, and yet what often happens is we wag our finger at the world and then we turn a blind eye to the person within the membership of the church who seeks a divorce and doesn't have biblical grounds for a divorce. Someone who says, I, I want a divorce, and you ask why, and they say, oh, I'm just not in love with them anymore. And the church doesn't have the courage to say, hey, that is not a reason for a divorce in the Bible. And when a church just kind of turns a blind eye to a member seeking a divorce with, without biblical grounds, what, what they're saying is, oh, that's the more gracious, more loving thing. We just let them mind their own business. But when that is the church's attitude towards divorce, it begins to infiltrate the hearts and minds of everyone in the membership where marriage slowly begins to be devalued. And people in the church begin to think, well, you know, you can get a divorce just because you don't love them anymore. Or, you know, we, we look at the way the world defines the word justice and we mock it. And we laugh and we ridicule it. We say, can you believe they think that's justice? And then we turn a blind eye at the member of the church who runs a payday loan center that charges an interest rate of 435%. And makes a profit by taking advantage of the poor. Oh, we just turn a blind eye because we say, ah, you know, well, business is business. And, and that's over here and this is what we believe. And we mock the world's vision of justice and yet we don't maintain justice within our own membership. Because if we were to call a member out, now there's a relationship. It's just, it gets messy. Like maybe when they leave, other people are going to be upset. They're going to walk out the door. Maybe we won't be able to fund ministry. We, we got to worry about the budget. We got to worry about attendance. We, we got, you know, we got these things to be concerned with. And so the church is silent when it comes to their members and loud when it comes to the world. And Paul says, you've got it all backwards. What? What role do you have with judging those outside the church? Your job is to maintain those inside the church. 
And so in, in verse 9 through 13, Paul is addressing a Corinthian misunderstanding. In verse 9, he, he speaks of a letter, a previous letter he'd written to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter. But it's clear that in that letter, he told them, hey, don't associate with sexually immoral people or, you know, greedy swindlers, idolaters. Don't, don't, don't associate with those kinds of people. And the church in Corinth thought he means if those sexually immoral people out in the world, we're not to be around them. Those greedy people out in the world, we're not to be around them. And Paul said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Y you misunderstood. <laughs> if you were to never be around sexually immoral people out in the world, you'd have to like move to Mars. Like you've got to be around sinners. That's the way this world works. And in fact, if you're going to take the gospel to the lost, you got to rub elbows with sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. You, you've got to be out in the world and you've got to be among them. You can't wall yourself off as a church from the world. That is a mistake. What I meant to say, what I was trying to communicate, he makes clear in verses 10 and following, is that you're not to associate with sexually immoral, greedy, uh, idolaters, swindlers, those kinds of people who claim the name brother, who say they are a Christian and they operate in this way. Those are the people you are to separate from. He says, verse 11, you're not even to eat with such a one. And certainly Paul has in mind here the Lord's Supper. That when someone is living in open, ongoing sin that brings public shame on the name of Jesus Christ, they are to be cut off from the Lord's Supper as a sign that there is that there's something wrong in their relationship with Christ. They're acting as though they are not a believer. That's why they're to be cut off from the supper, cut off from communion. It's where we get that word excommunicated. Cut off from communion. But, but I think Paul has something even more in mind than that, not just the supper, but he's saying if, if you've got a buddy who, who believes themselves to be a Christian, and that's how they refer to themselves. And they call you up and they say, hey, you want to go grab lunch? That your response to that person ought to be, you know what, I would love to have lunch with you. But you know, when we have lunch, we're going to have to talk about, you know, whatever the issue is. And, and you're not doing that to shame them or slap them on the wrist. You're doing that because you love them and you care about them. And so you can't just go on and carry on a casual conversation as though everything is okay. Because you love your friend, you've got to bring this up in conversation and say, look, th there is something here that's not right. You've got to repent of this. This has got to change. That's Paul's admonition to the church. Now, you Get your mind wrapped around that. If you don't understand what open rebellion looks like, you're going to start canceling a lot of lunches or having a lot of really uncomfortable conversations. Because open rebellion, we've got to be clear what it is. Open rebellion is any ongoing sin that brings public shame to the name of Jesus Christ. What open rebellion is not is, you know, some level of doctrinal disagreement. Um, so, certainly there's doctrines we have to agree upon. Jesus is God. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by works. These are things we have to agree upon. 
But Paul is not saying we've got to agree on every interpretation of every issue or else someone is in open rebellion to Jesus. Because you got to remember the situation in Corinth here. There are four warring factions. They've all divided from one another based on their preferred teachers and doctrinal opinions. And Paul isn't saying, hey, you've done right to separate from one another over your differences. He's saying, hey, you guys, you're, you're foolish. You're acting like kids. you got to come back together. And so we aren't supposed to divide over every difference in doctrine. What is open rebellion, what needs to be disciplined, where you have to have that conversation is not over, you know, secondary and tertiary matters, but, but just over matters that would be doctrinal matters of first importance or sins that are ongoing and bring public shame to the name of Jesus Christ. For example, in Romans chapter 14, Paul says believers can disagree on a doctrine as important as what you do with the Sabbath and still worship with one another. And so here in the text, what he is calling us to is, is saying, look, church discipline is, is not a call to divide over every difference we might have, but it is a call to be who we are. And we are the church of Jesus Christ. And what we find in Ephesians is that although we are sinners, we've, we all sin, we have been made saints. We have been rescued because Jesus stepped into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin and mine. He rose on the third day in victory. He ascended to where he now lives at the Father's right hand. And the Bible tells us he has done all of this so that he might present the church to himself as his bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And is that who you are? Are you someone without blemish? I know I got plenty of blemishes still. And so what the text tells us is that Jesus is presently washing us with the water of the word. That as we come to texts like 1 Corinthians 5, as we study the Bible, as it is preached, God's word is doing a work in us and through us to make us more like Jesus. So that we might reflect his character and when he returns, we will be made like him. And so the church is to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And we have to remove those from membership who would send a, a signal to the outer, outside world. Hey, something that is not accurate about, about Jesus Christ. But we got to be careful in this discipline, in this correction. Because as we saw last week, one of the things that sets Jesus apart from every other religion and every other religious teacher is his gentleness. Isaiah 42, it's said of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And so it's unsurprising that in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Paul says when, when anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual, you who are like Jesus, should correct him in a spirit of, and what do you think the word is? Gentleness. The, the correction has to come with, with gentleness because it's got to look like Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come to destroy us. He doesn't come to bruise us or break us. Jesus comes to heal us. And there's this, this kicker there in Galatians 6 verse 1. At the end it says, 
You've you got to correct with gentleness and keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. You see, discipline is dangerous because as soon as you step out to discipline someone, correct someone, you, you can stumble because it can make you proud. You can say, look at how wrong they are and how right I am. I am a better Christian than them. And I have seen churches devour themselves having doctrinal purity tests to see who is closest to Jesus in their doctrine. And the church just disintegrates because everyone is fueled with pride and exalting themselves above the others. But on the other hand, notice Paul is saying here in this text, discipline is, is dangerous because if you don't act, if you don't have the courage to act, it will destroy you as well because there is a kind of arrogance that comes there that says, hey, we don't have to do what Jesus said. And the sin that is present in the lives of those who ought to be removed will begin to infiltrate the entire congregation. And so discipline has to be carried out, but it has to be done in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ has to be done in a way that is gentle and seeks to restore, not to punish or shame. And so may God give us the grace to be like Jesus. I mean, people who wouldn't spend our time wagging our finger at the world, standing off from a distance, but people who would be eager to rub elbows with sinners. People who wouldn't wag our fingers in their faces, but would witness to them. People who wouldn't shout at the world on social media in order to, to shame them, but people instead who would be filled with sympathy for them. Because we understand, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 taught us, what do we have that we have not received? But for the grace of God, we would be in the same place. May God give us the grace to be a church that has the courage to correct those who are erring and on a dangerous path. But may we have also the gentleness of Jesus so that we would not bruise the most delicate of reeds. May, may, may we have the humility of Jesus so that when we move to correct, we don't seek to correct them from above, but we come to serve them from below. Church discipline will always be messy unless it looks like the Messiah. And so may we be a church that has the courage to engage in the practice of church discipline in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of salvation in Jesus. We pray that the grace of, of our Lord would so shape our hearts that, Father, we would love one another enough to, to have hard conversations, but to be able to have them with a humble spirit. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning and they know that they are, they are engaged in ongoing sin. Those who, who are fearful this morning that their ongoing sin would be made known, that they would be put to shame. 
Lord, I pray that this would be a time that your spirit would give them the courage to be able to go and confess that to a brother or sister in Christ. Knowing that that, that brother or sister is like Jesus and, and will not use that information to harm them, to shame them, but in an effort to see them made right with you, healed and whole. Father, we know that that takes an enormous amount of courage, an enormous amount of trust, and so I pray as an act of your spirit, you would would give them that today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.